Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to look at another section out of the book of Acts, uh, uh, where the church, uh, as we have said over this time, this book of Acts written by Luke is sort of part two, the sequel to the book of Luke. And why the, seem, why, the, why the book of Acts is a proper sequel to the book of Luke is that the book of Luke, when he, when he, when he wrote that, was the, was the biography of the life of Christ as Christ lived out in this world, the ministry of God's grace, and the book of Acts is part two of God in Christ living out the, the, the reality of his grace on earth, Jesus living out the reality of his grace on earth by his spirit in the life of his people. And as I've told you, I've told you a dozen times as we've, as we've looked at this section, if I were God, that's not how I'd have done it. I would not have given any of you I would not have given any of you any responsibilities in this process whatsoever because none of you are responsible. I'm not responsible either. Sinners, sinners, <laughs> incompetent, incapable sinners that are given God's grace to use and to, and to enjoy and to promote and to give out, that doesn't seem efficient to me. But see, okay, but the reason I keep saying that is because, gratefully, I am not God. I want you to, want you to let's just linger on that. Number two, my assessment of efficiency and what is appropriate and how things would properly, organically, graciously, generously expand, that ability to assess that efficiency process is broken. So I don't know what's efficient. God, in his grace, in his love, has to has to tell us, has to, and the way he, the, and, and he has told us in the book of Acts and in the, throughout the scriptures is his most efficient, his most loving, his most powerful way to transform, convert, and, over, and, and overwhelm the world with his love and grace is by implanting it with his spirit into the lives of individuals and send them like a positive, healthy contagion throughout the world. And that's when things start happening. Praise God, that's what he's done. And we see examples of this in the scriptures. And we see this next section. This is a critical, a critical shift from what we've looked at up to now. We see, we see the, 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 up to now in the book of Acts, we've seen the Spirit of God operating through the 12 apostles that Christ left. The, the, as it were, the center circle. Jesus is the center circle. And then outside of that, the rippled into the lives of the apostles and some of the disciples and then deacons. And then now we're seeing the circle expand a little bit further on with this, with this new, with this new uh, member to the process. And we see uh, this is what, what probably has at the top of your Bible uh, on chapter 9, which is we're in looking at uh, Acts chapter 9. At the top of your Bible there probably says, the same as mine, Saul's conversion. Yeah, we're going to look at how God converts and what we learn from that. So look, if you will, starting verse 1, I'll read down a couple of paragraphs as we go, and we'll follow along. Meanwhile, 
Saul was breathing out murderous threats against God's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell, to his, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see, any, see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named An Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus there named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me, to, uh, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your Word. I pray that even now, Lord, it might... Uh, it might penetrate into our, into our cold hearts and warm them, into our hard hearts that it might soften them, into our selfish hearts that it might humble and embolden us to see outside of ourselves. In Jesus' name we ask him for his grace. Amen. You know, I was thinking this week as I'm, as we're, as I'm getting ready to, you know, preparing for this, uh, this passage about Saul's conversion. Um, I'm thinking about the process of conversion that we go through, and sometimes I wonder, certainly conversion is necessary uh, for, a, for someone to have had 
for someone to have a relationship with God at all. A conversion is necessary. I mean, the scriptures even say, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So some conversion, some, some rebirth has to occur. Some change, some transformation has to occur in order for, that, for, a, for, for someone to have had and to continue to have a, a relationship with God. But, but conversion is, is I'm, not sure we, I'm not sure we quite understand conversion. Sometimes I think what many people in the church or even many people outside the church, whether, whether, and so I don't, know that it's, I don't know that it's any different whether you, whether you happen to go to church or not, this idea is I think some people think conversion means that, means it, they think conversion um, it's not conversion, but convertible. I think, I think many, many people who have had a, a connection with Christ or who look at people who have had a connection with Christ, they think that God is making them into a convertible. That's different than conversion. If you follow me, convertible. I always wanted a convertible when I was a kid. I wanted a convertible VW Bug. Remember those? You know, do they still make convertible VW bugs? I don't even know. I always wanted one. They were, they were huge. They had a back seat. And I, and I was going to be the coolest kid in town. Never could find one. And one, and, and any one they did, that I did find um, was too expensive for, for my, uh, for my uh, you know, 16-year-old budget. But you think about a convertible, they're nice and, you know, and you can convert them. You know, n- normally they're one thing. Normally, they're, they've got the top on, you run around, and, and you're all, everything, everything's good. But then when the sun's out, you can convert that thing, and it's just driving around, winding your hair, girls all attracted, everything. But then when the weather's bad, and when it gets cold, you go back to the way you were. That's not conversion. That's convertible. But what the gospel of grace does is turns us from what we used to be into a new thing. So if you take the same image, the gospel turns us from the car that had the top into a car that doesn't have the top, and now you don't have the top on sunny days and on rainy days. You've been converted. That's what we get when we see this section of Scripture is that, is that it's showing us what Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is showing us is what happens to a person when they encounter the gospel of grace, when they encounter the person of Jesus. And in this, I want us to look at this through three different sort of venues. We see Saul's sudden encounter his, we see the surprising method by which God grabs him, and then we see the, strength, the strengthening relationships or the strengthening results of that experience. In this, Saul, as he's going about, uh, as he's going about his life, you know, meanwhile, the church, is, the church is in persecution. We see that happening previously in the previous weeks. And then it says, meanwhile, Saul's, about, Saul's still breathing out murderous threats. Saul is still out on the on the attack. Saul is still trying to bring, to undermine the church and bring down this way, this Christian way, this person of Jesus. And, and he is getting letters. He is getting authority in order, to, in order to arrest and imprison and bring to death anybody. We already know that he's willing to, he's willing to stand on the sidelines and let people be killed 
who know and who are, and who are sharing the love of Christ. We saw him stand there and uh, at Stephen's stoning in the previous chapters, the first, one of the first deacons. Deacons in that day, they were elected. They were, they, were, they were chosen by God simply to care for rejected people, people who were left out, widows who could not who could not care for themselves. Here's a man of mercy, a man of tenderness, a man of risk-taking care for the people around him. That's all he was doing. And the, and, and the culture of religious fanatics began to stone him. And Saul, coward aggressor that he was, stands on the sideline and says that he was holding, he was holding their coats. In other words, as if to say, Ooh, you, you want to get a stone to stone the man? Here, I'll hold your coat. I'll hold your jacket. That's the kind of person Saul is. And he's going about these murderous threats, continuing to do it, enemy of God. And suddenly, the God he's been persecuting through the people that he's been arresting and murdering, the God enters his life the, the one, one uh, theologian says that, that this encounter, this sudden encounter with Saul, uh, with Jesus on the road to Damascus is the same level of encounter. God, Christ, Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul was not trying to find God. He wasn't trying to find himself. Paul, Saul knew everything. Saul was fine. Saul didn't see himself as anybody who was in need. I don't need God. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious, he was astute in religious ways. He tells us later in some of his letters to the church how great a Pharisee he was, how exceptional he was, how he came from just the right family, just the right, just the right tribe. He, 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 he followed the law completely. He was moral above standards. He was head and shoulders above the rest, and yet all of that was worth nothing. He's got, his life is seemingly all together, and he's out trying to destroy everything that he thinks is going to bring that apart. Saul was not looking for Christ. And Christ, but see, it's not about whether you're looking for Christ. It's about whether he's looking for you. One, well, I, was, I mentioned that one theologian puts it this way. You know, Saul looking for Christ is the same level of, of, of paradox as if, the, as if the mouse is looking for the cat. Saul was running. Saul had no interest, in, but yet we see God, the power of his intention... He is more the pursuer. He, he is pursuing Christ, uh, Saul with his, with his devastating, with his, with his overwhelming love more powerfully, more intentionally, more aggressively than Saul is pursuing hatred and threats of fear and murder against the church and against Christ. And we see this in this encounter. He encounters him. This, the, the suddenness of, of this encounter comes out of the blue. And it really, this encounter, the reason, part of the reason it's surprising and sudden is that the encounter that he's having here is it's confounding Saul's understanding of who God is. It's an, it's an issue of 
It's not just an issue of faith or a, spirit, or a personal spiritual encounter. It's an issue of who is God really? What is he like? Paul, uh, Paul and I'll, I'm sorry to convert that back and forth. I, you know, Saul was his older name and his new name is Paul. And so I'm going to flip back and forth. So flip, let me just say that right. So I have, stop apologizing. But Saul's encounter, Saul, up to this point, Saul thought he knew who God was. He had him in a box. He clearly, he said, I know what this is like, and I know, I know God, I know how God works. I know what he's like. I, I have an image of him. I have an idea of who he is, and he perfectly fits into my understanding of him, and anything that's going on in this way, this new, this new thing is completely off the rails, and I need to eradicate it because it doesn't fit into my image of who God is. And conversion, conversion, transformation of the human heart always involves that. It it always involves you and me and whoever has an encounter with God that my previous understanding of who he is is, is confounded in such a way that it suddenly and surprisingly changes my understanding of who he is. If you think you know who God is, be careful. If you think you've got, if you think you understand how He operates in your world or in the world of the people around you, or you know, be careful because you may ha- you may be on the verge of a sudden encounter. The other thing that we notice in here, you know, that, uh, is that in this in these sudden encounters that uh, that we all have. We all have ideas of who God is, how he operates, and what he's doing in my life. We always have these ideas, but grace always challenges them. The grace of God always challenges my preconceived notions of what God's doing. You know, as, we, as Becky and I... Um, recently, we've run into situations with, with my folks. My, we, we, both, we both have, both of our parents are still living. Um, w- wonderful grace. They're in, they're in their mid to late 80s. Um, and they are now, just now, getting to the place where some of their health issues are, are getting to the point where they're needing more and more care giving. And, and so we're already, we're already and have already been caregiving for our children and our grandchildren as so the generation behind us, we've been caring for them since the very beginning. So we're used to that. Now we're caring for the now we're caregiving for the generation ahead of us, and there's four of them. I couldn't handle the three kids I had, and now the three grandkids, and now I got through. I got four more to deal with on the front, and I am you know along with everything else, and I am beyond and beyond and my preconceived notions about how to use my time. But how to use my how to use my life? How much energy it's going to require? What my about uh, my, my preconceived notions about wisdom about how to, how to process any of this? I am way you know way beyond my abilities in an ongoing fashion. So we're we're having a sudden encounter with Jesus almost every day. But that's what conversion looks like. The human heart doesn't change doesn't change unless 
preconceived notions and ideas about Christ and what he's doing in a life or will do or can do in a life operate. Even, even Ananias, who was the guy that... He, we'll talk about Ananias in a minute, but Ananias, who's the guy living there in town, he's one of the guys that he's living in. He lives in Damascus. Luke says he was living there. So Paul was on his way there, and he had letters to arrest anybody who he found there who was a part of the way. So what was, what was Ananias? What was he like? What was Ananias likely going to have happen? He's living, he's living in Damascus. He's part of the way. Saul's on his way down with letters. So Ananias was on his way to prison in his mind. He knew, all, he knew what was going on in this. I've heard many reports about this guy. Even Ananias, even his preconceived notions about what God can do, what the grace of God can accomplish, is being challenged. Because in his mind, Saul's on his way. I've heard a lot about him. Nothing can change what's going to happen. Saul's an enemy of God. Saul's powerful beyond measure. Saul's plans and ideas cannot be thwarted. There's no hope for me at this situa- in this situation. And Ananias is being, as it were, converted. His ideas are being challenged. Can God turn an enemy into a friend? Yes, every day. But he didn't believe that. And you and I have preconceived notions about what God can and can or will do in our lives or in the lives of the people around us or in the lives of our culture, and we stop, we, we don't know that we're not believing accurately. We don't know that we've, that we've d- developed preconceived notions about what God can accomplish, and we need those ideas converted, challenged through sudden and other ways so that we might be converted. Because here's the thing. Um, The human heart, um, when you stretch a rubber band, when you put it under stress, what happens when it's not under stress? It goes back the way it was. Okay, that's not conversion. That's convertible. Yeet, think, zink, think. And we all want to go back. The human heart always wants to go back to the way it was before it got stretched. Always wants to go back. Top down. I want the top to go back when it's cold. I want the top to go back to the way it used to be. I like it. I don't like the top down all the time. <laughs> and Jesus is going, let sunshine in. I'm converting you. We, the human heart always wants to go back the way it used to be, to the way of, of, of a pre, I, preconceived notions. And so my belief system is always retreating from where God wants me to go. And we need these encounters with Jesus and his grace to to help move us forward, not backward in this this concept. The surprising method he uses for these surprising conversions, these surprising encounters, do you know the method he uses? It's generally one method. And this is the hard part of the sermon. 
I'm going to tell you in advance. It's going to hurt a little bit. But you kind of know what the method is. I don't have to tell you. We, it's foregone conclusion. Christ says it to Ananias to tell, to tell Paul, same thing. Point two of the sermon, Ananias gets there. Point one, brother. Point two, going to get healed. Point three, here's the, the method that he uses to challenge our preconceived notions, to bring us to change, to convert us is, do you want to say it with me? No, of course you don't. You're Presbyterians. <laughs> Suffering. Suffering. Sacrifice. Selflessness. These are the methods. Paul even said it. Take up your cross, Jesus. You know, quoting Jesus, you know, quoting Jesus. Paul, Jesus said it. Paul said it. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up the cross is the image of Christianity. The cross is where it all happened. The cross is the place. Is the is the place. The reason that suffering is the way that hearts are converted, that lives are converted, that ideas are converted, that faith is converted. The reason that the that suffering is way is because. Suffering is the center of the whole faith. Suffering is all about what Jesus was the one who suffered. What do we call him? What does Isaiah refer to him? The most beautiful of all the prophets. The most, the most linguistically poetic of all the prophets. What did he call him? What kind of servant? Suffering one. Suffering servant. And he... And, and he, he his, and yet, here's a man, Jesus, here's a man, suffering servant, who was willing to go follow down the path to the cross, all the way down until it, until it bottoms out and then further in to the, to the pits of hell and to the pains of, 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 of enduring God's wrath on our behalf. Um, suffering, and yet, and yet, when you read the Scriptures, when you read the Gospels of, of the encounter of the person in Jesus, does he, does he look to you like he's suffering? Does he, does he sound, does he sound like he's suffering? Does he have a maudlin sort of grayness to his tone? No. Here's a man whose life is all about the downward turn. His life is all about surrender and sacrifice. His life is all about selflessly giving and sacrificing for the people around him and so that you and I might never have to take the furthest sacrifice in our lives but can be saved out of that. And yet, his life, is, his life appears on these pages as light and life and power and embrace and lilt and joy and hope and thrill. He's rejoicing with those who rejoice and he's, and he's you know, and he's suffering and, and, and weeping with those who weep. How is that possible? Because when I'm suffering, you know it. You don't have to be around me that long to know, oh, Drew's, Drew's struggling. And if, you, and if I know you really well, it's even worse. That's the, uh, strangers might say, oh, Drew seemed a little off today. You know, generally pretty vibrant, but, you know, what's going on with that? And then the people, the closer into you get, yeah, all the people on the inside, 
Dad, you got to get it together. Becky, what is going on? Uh, suffering is suffering and sacrifice and selflessness. And I want, the, I want you to hear me say those words all as one little enchilada. They're all the same concept. Because when I am not the center of the universe, it feels like suffering. When I am willingly taking up my cross in order to benefit the people and lives around me, it feels like suffering. When life goes the wrong way and I suddenly get a windfall gift from my Aunt Sally and then, you know, for $500 because she forgot the birthdays and she got a windfall, so she's passing it on to her aunt and her nieces and nephews, and I'm going, yes, that's wonderful. And then, the, and then I need new tires for my car that cost $500. And I'm going around going, what the heck? Suffering. When life turns left. All those things feel the same way. And we think that therefore it must, something must have gone wrong. If I'm not the center of the universe, something must have gone wrong. When no, actually, you aren't supposed to be the center of the universe. You and I are not supposed to be revolving around ourselves. That's, you know what? When you revolve around yourself, you're not going anywhere. You get real dizzy in that space. It's a prison of its own making, just revolving around. That's, not, that's, not, that's no growth. There's no life. You're not supposed to be the center of the universe. You're supposed to be out here orbiting around the center of the universe, which is Christ, and then powerful things take place. Suffering gets me out of the center. Sacrifice gets me out of the center. I'm the problem. You're the problem. But we think whenever we're not, something must be, must be wrong. Suffering leads me to rethink my calibrations. You know, I have, to live, I have to sort of laugh at the irony of this situation is that Jesus' testimony when he was walking the earth, when he, when he did his ministry, you know, the kinds of things he did were, was always relieving people's sufferings. He, you know, if there were blind people, he was making them not blind. He was giving them sight. But in this instance... And that's what they needed. But in this instance, what did Paul need? He needed to be blinded. He needed to, he needed to be at the mercy of others for a while. He needed to be humbled to the place where he could contemplate for three days. But in the midst of all this suffering, here's the Savior. Now, the surprising part of the method is that suffering is the surprising method that changes, that converts us from the, from the, the weak powerless, imprisoned people that we are into powerful, selfless, bold people that are free is suffering, is sacrifice. It's always uncomfortable. Nothing's wrong when that's happening. Nothing's, nothing's gone wrong. Actually, everything's gone right. <laughs> Stay the course in that process. But the other surprising thing, the other surprising part of this element is what did Paul, what, when, when Saul says, Lord, who are you? It's an interesting question. He calls him Lord. So he knew something. But he goes, it's, it's as if he's going, this is not the Lord I'm used to. Lord, who are you? Who are you? There's sometimes, there's sometimes where, you know, where one of my kids, you know, will text me something or will do something or, you know, Becky will have done something, 
you know, and I'll say, you know, a phrase that I'll sometimes use is, who are you and what have you done with my wife? It's not that I don't know her. It's that what I'm experiencing with her is so, so amazingly different than what I'm used to. It's blowing my mind in a wonderfully glorious way. And there's a sense where when Saul says, Lord, who are you? And the answer is even more astonishing. He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the person you've been persecuting. And please don't overlook, this is the other surprising part of the suffering. In that moment, he says to Saul, you thought you were persecuting people, but they're my people. And when you touch them, you touch me. I am so identified with these people. I am so identified with these children that when they suffer, I suffer. When they sacrifice, I sacrifice. When they are moved out of the center, I go with them. I am theirs and they are mine. And so in the suffering, in the sacrifice that God leads us to, to convert us into healthier, beautiful people, he doesn't leave us in that suffering. He stays. He's there. He, he, that's the place where he wants us. That's where we find him most in those places. In the overwhelm, which is why I say at Kids Fest, it will always push you beyond your limits. God, I've told this, I've said this a thousand times in the years we've been here. God never gives you as much as you can handle. I don't know who came up with that idea. I don't know who ever over the centuries, you know, God only gives you as much as you can handle. What's, how's the cliche go? No. He always gives you more than you can handle in your own strength because then you find him in those places. You're converted in those places. Now, having said that, that's the method, but here's... But the tension of the passage here is, is not that we're all running after, give me more suffering. Can I, can I do the next hard thing? How about, give me more. Give me, let me, can I take that whip and hit myself with it? How about that? No. And the reason we know that from this passage is when Ananias, when God says, Ananias, I'm about to take you to a place of suffering. I'm about, to ta- I'm about to convert you again. I'm about to lead you to a place of selfless love and sacrifice. Ananias doesn't go, yippee. He says, Lord, are you sure? Are you? You can hear it in, his, you can hear it in the tone. I've heard about this guy. You, and I, and the, the, the specifics, I just, it, this, it always makes me laugh a little bit because it's like the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Now, it's, it's a, go down, go down to Mount Avenue 242. It's so specific. It's so almost, it's almost hilariously specific that God, God himself, I'm sure he's got a thousand other things he could be doing and he's going, hey, Ananias, go down the block. You know Judas's house, 242, Straight Street? Go, go there. It's a guy there I need. His investment into the specifics of our lives is, and, and it, shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. No, no, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise me because he says he has our hairs numbered. He knows the sparrows when they drop from the sky. <laughs> why, wouldn't, why, why wouldn't he care about the details? 
And he certainly didn't need Ananias to do this. Why? Here's the inefficiency again. Why? <laughs> because he's trying to connect. He's trying to, he's trying to convert a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And he's turning an enemy into a friend. And he takes one of the people from the way and he says, I need you to do something for, for the man that I'm going to need. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to push you to the limits because I know you're afraid of this man. But I want you to see what I've done. I want you to be converted your ideas of what I can accomplish in and through this world. I want to blow your mind too. And so Ananias says, okay, because you say so. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And he gets there, knocks on the door. Here's the guy, puts his hands on him. And he's changed. What happens as a result of this? When conversion takes place, what happens? Well, what happens, it always the relationship you have with everything changes. Grace, conversion changes everything. So Saul's relationship to God has changed. Everything about his understanding has changed. And now he is, and his, and his understanding of himself and where he fits in the world has changed because what was the message Ananias gave him? I want you to tell him how much he will suffer for me. So he's giving him the method. <laughs> he's going, you're converted. Your ideas of how, who I am, your, your sins are forgiven. Your, the scales are off. The blindness that you've created is gone. I'm going to do that for you, and I'm going to identify with you, and now I'm going to lead you into a way of life that is going to be a life of suffering. Uh, and not just because you're the worst sinner. It's, he did, it wasn't the... Paul got more suffering than the rest of us, or that his life was a life of suffering because he was that bad. And careful about that, because when you start thinking you're not as bad as guy, that kind of pride doesn't lead you to the cross. It leads you away from the cross. Paul's life was, you know, I am, his life, as, you get, as he got older in the faith, his understanding of his sin got greater. His understanding of his need of grace and the need of the cross was more powerful. That's what God wants us to, to, to go. That's the way he's leading us, is to, to, to understand our need of grace and, the, and to the need of conversion on a regular basis. But when grace comes, when conversion comes, it always changes my sense of relationship to God. It changes my sense of relationship to myself and what I know about myself. My psychology changes. So I become... I become bold. I become humble. That humble boldness goes together. I become, I become less scrutinizing of others and more scrutinizing of myself. My relationship, my relationship to the church changes. And now my relationship is, is one of brotherhood with the people around me. Natural enemies. Natural enemies now become friends. And, 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 and natural enemies who have been converted... That conversion is immediate, but it's also ongoing. So a natural enemy, I mean, I'm sure Ananias took him a while to, when he saw Paul on the street not to wince a little bit. But, he's, but that takes practice. <laughs> that takes engagement. That takes the, the, the process of selflessness, the process of, of, of dying to self, and the discomfort of suffering takes practice. And I think, and here's one of the things I was thinking this week, I think one, we are naturally drawn to comfort. We are naturally drawn to selfishness. And I think pandemic made all that worse. 
We atrophied back to top up, drive down the road, stream, streaming live services because to have to leave my house, I can drink champagne and watch this thing on Sunday. And I know people who do. And I got no problem with that because I did that last week when I wasn't here. And it's a wonderful convenience. And it's very comfortable. But the method of conversion and the method of the cross is selflessness. The method of the cross is discomfort at that level. And to get in the building and to love people that aren't lovable and to engage in the process of mercy and to take risks beyond your abilities and to string and to, and to find and to find the person and to be with the people who are natural enemies, it just isn't comfortable all the time. And then we think something's wrong. Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with that. Actually, everything's right about that. And that's where conversion, that's where grace is leading us to that right, uncomfortable place of selfless sacrifice for the people around us. It and that's the nature of the church. That's why conversion always changes my relationship to the people around me. And it changes my relationship to the people in the culture too. Because then I see the culture with compassion. When I'm converted and I'm the chief sinner, and I get off my throne and let Jesus on it, I then now see, I'm able to see the world as a place that needs compassion, that needs hope, that needs transformation that I had. Humbly, boldly, lovingly. C.S. Lewis put it this way. This principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. That's conversion. That's grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you're leading us down a road we never were looking for, that we often don't want. It's counterintuitive to our sense of, of what it means to know you. And I pray that, Lord, as you break those ideas, as you challenge them, that, Lord, you would lead us to this freeing, bold, transformative life of self-sacrifice where, where fear ceases to exist and love expands. Pray that you do that for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.